Welcome to the Never Die Tribe, a weekly culture and news podcast about the most interesting city between Albuquerque and Boise. We're going to be talking about the politics of Harry Potter, Michael Hancock's Urban Farming Initiative, and John Elway's Name Game. I'm Jerry Jacane Mayer. I'm here with new co-host, Josh Johnson. How's it going, Josh? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. John and Joel are out, but as a guest, we have a special treat, Ari Armstrong. He is a libertarian free market political writer and runs the blog freecolorado.com. Ari, thank you for driving out here and joining us on a Sunday morning on a holiday weekend, which you've already reminded us repeatedly you've so graciously done. No, thanks a lot. No, it's actually a great, great weekend for it. Nice. So we're just nice. taking it easy. Tell us what is going on with your book called The Values of Harry Potter. The new Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows, is coming out July 15th. But this book looks at the politics of Harry Potter. How do you describe this book to people who may not understand what, that, what exactly that means? Well, there's a lot of themes that I'm looking at. So I'm looking at the basic values of the heroes, some of their moral virtues. But one of the big themes of the novels is politics, so I do address that in a couple of the essays. So, I don't know, have you guys re- even read the uh, read the novels? I read the first one. So briefly, I, parts of it. I mean, you, you got to get into really the fifth book before they really get great. But the basic story arc, right, is this villain rises, slowly regains his power, and then rises to this Hitler-esque sort of dictator. And so Harry Potter and his friends and his allies have to fight him, and eventually he takes over the government. So you see the government descend first into corruption and then into outright dictatorship. So at first, Harry and his allies are sort of working with the government, then they're sort of alienated from the government, and finally they're working against it because it's fallen under the rule of a dictator. So that's the general political arc of the story. Well, to start off, what was it that gave you the idea to do this type of analysis of the the Harry Potter books? Were you reading it and it seemed a natural thing to you, or did you approach it from some different angle? Well, I thought that there was there was some really fascinating themes in the books that I didn't think people were getting because they're focusing on the magic of it or the alleged witchcraft of it or sort of these silly debates about the books. And I thought a lot of people are missing the, the core themes of the books. So I had in mind first to write a series of articles. Articles didn't work out, so I thought I would refine them and put them together in an integrated book, which worked out fine, I think. What do you, what do you think overall politically it says? I mean, does it present a model of, of governance? It's more critical of this rise of tyranny, right? So it's definitely, Voldemort has some strong parallels to Hitler in the sense that he's deeply racist, that they're, they, they persecute these half-blood wizards and such, and non-wizards, they're, they're deeply racist against certain peoples. So there's definitely ties to the rise of Hitler, but, but it's generally negative, right? So there are some deep liberty themes, but Rowling herself is more or less what we would consider sort of moderate left. So I would disagree with her personally on a lot of political issues, but those don't really, her personal beliefs don't seem to really come through in the novels. It's more of a critique of this rise of a tyrant. Do you think that Rawling had those political designs, either consciously or unconsciously, while she was writing these books? Or is it something that, you know, occurred naturally and, you know, there's lessons to be learned from? Oh, definitely. Though it, it doesn't really start to take hold and take hold until the fifth book. So the first books don't have as deep of political themes. But certainly the, the last three books, which are the longest ones, are deeply political. And she clearly intended that. For instance, there's slavery in the books of elves 
right? So the, mm-hmm. the government sanctions a slavery and institutionalizes it. One of the great heroes is Hermione, and so her, one of her big fights is against elf slavery. So hmm. there are some clear, strong liberty themes in the books. So who who represents the government in these in these books, though, under your analysis? I mean, we say they're, they're fighting against the government. Who's the government? Well, is? it's the Minister of Magic is sort of sort of like the Prime Minister. So there's a, again, there's sort of this process. At first, the ministry is doing basically good things, at least in terms of wizards are concerned, in terms of protecting people from harm and violence. But then the wizard, once the government starts to become corrupt, then they turn to censorship, they start to oppress people, they try to put Harry on trial on these bogus charges. It becomes basically abusive of people's rights, even wizards' rights. Before it was abusive toward elves, of course. And then, of course, it's the outright fall of the ministry. So the minister, the new minister, becomes basically the puppet of Voldemort's dictatorial regime. It sounds like um, a lot of these are pretty well-tread fodder for other fiction. Um, does she offer a new perspective at all on this? Is, or is it sort of following a lot of the cliches? Well, yes, yeah, certainly it is well-tread ground. And I think right. she intends it that way. I mean, she's not trying to hide the links to Hitler at all. But she adds, what she does is look at the motivations of her villains. So her villains have a very... Unusual set of motivations. So, for example, Voldemort's deeply afraid of death, which is one of his one of the reasons why he goes out and he tries to control the whole world around him because he's trying to create this system in which no one can threaten him, threaten him or his power or destroy him. Which is ironic because that's what he actually achieves in the end by trying by abusing other people. Right? He actually puts himself in grave danger and, and loses eventually. So there are some interesting motivational issues. But as far as the politics itself are concerned, yeah, it's it's basically standard fare. But nevertheless, it's still worth looking at, especially. It's a great introduction for children to read the novels and then see, ooh, wait, these have some really interesting historical parallels. Now, you draw the parallels between um, these books and some of the characters in there and and Hitler, but do you see any associations or parallels with some of the political issues going on right now, particularly in the Middle East, where there are numerous dictators that have held power for many, many years with authoritarian rule, namely people like Muammar Gaddafi, you know, when you mention the, the obsession with total control, the fear of death, the uh, the censorship, is there style any... choices. I don't. I don't. <laughs> yeah, she, doesn't, she doesn't seem to have that parallel directly intended. However, she is a strong feminist in the sense that she's for equal rights, and some of her strongest characters are women. And so, definitely, I think she would be not on board with the a lot of the widespread oppression of women there. But that's, that doesn't really come through in the novels itself. But, you know, those are universal sorts of themes. What do you think are some of the, the main political lessons that, that you're arguing, you know, can be seen inside these Harry Potter books? Well, there's basically three, there's three things I can look at. The good things the government does protect people. Then there's the definitely bad things it does, like sanction elf slavery. And there's a lot of sort of ambiguous things. So one interesting thing about the books is there's segregation of the magical and non-magical communities, which is enforced by the wizards. Hmm. So, for instance, if a muggle sees a wizard flying around, they'll, like, erase that part of the of the mind. Like muggle. Stalin. Yeah, so it's really strange, right? So I think this is... It's, it's more of a literary device to keep so that she can have this magical world parallel to our world. But it works out in sort of some ways to me that are a little disturbing. I mean, you don't actually want to go erase people's minds because they see the wrong thing, right? That's a little bit... So I think that that clashes a little bit with some of the deeper liberty themes. You know, it's not she doesn't just all wrap all these lines up. For instance, they never outlaw elf slavery in the books. It's still an institution at the end, even though there's some progress against it. Right? So she's not trying to wrap up all... It's not fundamentally... They're not fundamentally political novels, right? So she's not wrapping up all these lines, though she does wrap up the main rise of the dictator line, right? How is she proposing that the people fight tyranny with 
magic? She's suggesting that I mean, take yeah, down they tyranny? use magic, right? But this is all clearly analogous to things that we can do, right? So right. there's these underground forces. So one great, I have this essay in the book about the media. So one thing that happens as a government becomes corrupt is it, they censor the media, and finally it becomes a propaganda arm for Voldemort's armies, right? But there's this independent journal, right? The Westward of its day, though it's it's more of a tabloid, right? But be, mm-hmm. but it becomes sort of like an independent, a real news journal. So the Quibbler, this is what it's called. They're able to publish a story, the real account of what happened with Voldemort and Harry, right? Th- sort of bypassing the censored media. So this is great. And then there's a radio. So they they have basically an underground radio stations, right, where they can broadcast news to the underground resistance. So these are all things that are not just, they do it through magical means sometimes, but they're not just applicable to the But the, but the notion that a free press is key to liberation or sort of getting out from under the, the oppressor. Right, and so you have word-to-word, communica- person-to-person communication. You have this journal, which fi- it, it too finally falls to Voldemort because he's able to kidnap people and threaten people. But they still have the radio all the way throughout. Uh, so final question from me, Ari Armstrong. Harry Potter books, obviously, they've completely changed publishing. They've had a huge impact on our culture and introduced a whole new generation of young readers to to, to really long-form literature. I'm wondering what you think about some of the new young adult books coming out right now, particularly since it seems like there's another trend toward more dystopian science fiction books. For example, the Hunger Games trilogy, which which delves really, really deeply, not even metaphorically, but <laughs> explicitly into the territory of you know oppressive governments and people struggling underneath them. What, have you... I've read summaries of that, but I haven't read that series yet. It looks really interesting. But there's sort of two trends, right? So the the Potter supernatural thing, that kind of spawned this whole thing of sort of pulp kids vampire stories, the right. Twilight series, which to me is just kind of silly pop romance stories, really. I mean, they're basically romance stories with some... Should I kiss the vampire or the werewolf? <laughs> I don't know! And so a lot of this, you know, I don't really take very seriously, and it's sort of frustrating to me that... You know, we go from Potter to Twilight. That, to me, is a big step down. So your book, uh, The Value of Harry Potter, is this for hardcore Harry Potter fans, political Yeah, people, you'll, get the most, you'll get the most out of it if you've read the novels. But there are some novels, like there's, a novel, there's an essay on psychology, essay on journalism, a couple essays on politics. So if you're just interested in those narrow topics and what the Potter novels say about them, you might be interested in some of in some selections of the books. But overall, it's for people and, who... And where can they find it? Valuesofharrypotter.com. Valuesofharrypotter.com. Okay. You know, too much magic controlled in, in the fewer hands is the, is the key to... Concentration of magic. Exactly. exactly. I think that, you know, we really need to have an amendment to our Constitution <laughs> right, to include right. that clause in there. But uh, our next topic, urban farming. Michael Hancock, who's running for mayor, has this... This is key to his platform in some way. Josh, tell us what, what the heck is going on with this. <laughs> Well, the Denver Post reported last week this one element of Michael Hancock's People's Plan, um, which in, proposes uh, to create thousands of new jobs for Denver citizens. It's actually an economic engine. Um, and what he imagines is urban farming on a huge, huge scale. That's massive uh, greenhouses in Metro Denver with hydroponics. From the proposal, here's a quote, Denver residents spend over $6 billion each year on food. However, local farmers produce less than one-tenth of what we consume. This $5.4 billion gap provides huge economic and job opportunities for our city. I think all of us can agree that people not having access to high-quality food is a bad thing. 
having more industry and urban farms in Denver if it creates more jobs is a good thing. Sure. But how does he actually propose to create this? Does he provide public incentives? Are there public funds going to this? Or does he just say, I'm going to hire a few positions with my cabinet and, and magically hope that this takes root? Yeah, it's not really clear, right? Are yeah, you? it seems to be more of a hopeful, I'm going to hope really hard for this and this magical thing will happen. What do you guys think in general about the whole urban farming movement and coupled with that, this issue around there are underserved communities within you know, we can call it the undercity, inner city. Some of it even extends out into kind of the older suburbs too, where it's you know if you don't ha- you don't have a car, you ride the bus around, you don't really have the ability to go across town to the Whole Foods or even to the local Safeway to get your food. Is that something that cities like Denver need to address more, or do you think that it's something that if there's a demand, there will be someone will step in and serve it? Well, I mean, it's it's what you're describing is a distribution issue. It's not it's not about the um, that there isn't available fresh produce for people. It's just not available in areas of lower income, and and I mean, that's a classic issue, you know, where people are buying their food at Seven Eleven and Quick Marts because, as you described, it's difficult for them to get to the food. I don't know that producing a huge greenhouse, basically having urban farming on a massive industrial scale is, is going to be a solution to that. And I don't think that's what he's proposing. What he's proposing is this as a, as a job creation engine, as this is an economic generator. And really, it's, it's, it's just like any other industry, really. It's, it's saying, why not just say, you know, in, increase industry production within Metro Denver to create jobs. Yeah, but he's if, choosing but, this one because it is. It's, it's a well, popular every, thing every, to talk about right now. Every politician right now wants to find their way to create jobs, jobs. within Denver. Right. And this is, you know, he's trying to kill two birds with one stone. And certainly a lot of governments, including Denver, will provide incentives to certain business that they want to see in, in there. Uh, Ari, is this something that Denver should be doing? Providing well, let, me, let me make two points. First of all, there can be a lot of benefits to gardening. It can be very relaxing. You get really fresh produce, right? And I think that cities should remove the barriers toward doing things like this. Like if there are zoning restrictions prohibiting greenhouses, say, those should be repealed. I think it's a good idea that the city is allowing people to grow their own chickens, even though that's not going to become a wide, you know, large-scale business, but it's nice if people want to grow a couple of chickens for eggs. I think that's perfectly fine. But... I think Hancock's proposal reveals massive ignorance of basic economics. I mean, look, it makes sense for people to grow food out on farmland, not in the middle of a densely populated city, by and large. So there's a reason why you grow peaches on the western slope and not in Denver. There's a reason why you grow bananas and coffee in South America and not in Colorado. So the fact is that different regions are better suited to growing different sorts of foods or different sorts of production activities. And Denver is just not well-suited toward big agriculture. This is silly. (laughs) But I would like to point out one factor, though, is that Denver already is a hub for urban, a type of urban agriculture done in warehouses that employs thousands of people, and that is medical marijuana. Right. Right? After the state passed its law allowing for these facilities to set up, there are literally dozens of these places, some of them in in the exact warehouse district in areas that Hancock wants to um, pursue this. And, you know, and hydroponics are a key to that industry as well. Sure. Maybe you can, maybe you can tell me. I don't even know. So are they actually growing most of it? locally like very locally or are they growing it out of the city and transporting it into their i don't know the actual uh the numbers in terms of how much 
of the medical marijuana comes in from out of state, but at least from the way that the state law is set up, you can, there are three different types of license that you can have to, you know, set up a dispensary, to bake marijuana into goods and another one to actually be cultivators. And you can grow so many plants based on square footage and there's zoning rules apply for that. But to be able to be one of the agriculture suppliers, yeah, that's definitely one of the, one of the, well, well, look, that's such a skewed, person. bizarre market because of all the federal and state controls. Right. I think on a real free market in marijuana, which I advocate, I think that you would have large-scale marijuana production, both of industrial hemp and of the THC-producing varieties of plants. And I don't think you'd have these small. I don't think it would make economic sense to grow a couple plants in your in your basement. With I mean, it's very expensive to have artificial lighting and such. It's much cheaper to grow them outside. Yeah, and if we're we're talking about you know these large scale grow indoor growth facilities are set up because they're it is still really difficult to produce marijuana on massive scales just freely. If we're talking about tomatoes, which you can go out to eastern Colorado and set up a tomato farm right. and just transport it in, yeah, you can uh, – but, there's but, not the incentive to open up like an indoor right. tomato growing facility. But Chuck Plunkett, Chuck Plunkett, who wrote the article about Hancock, he quoted an economist who had a very good point. It's like if this is economically viable, people will do it. We don't need special assistance from the mayor to promote industries that are economically viable. All we need is for the government to not get in the way. Um, so I think that's, that's as much – so I, don't, I think it's silliness for Hancock to be saying, well, we're, we, quote, the government is going to promote any kind of business. It's the government's job to protect our rights and our ability to go into the business of our choice. And then it should be up to the individual entrepreneurs to succeed or fail based on the market conditions. So, Ari, you think this uh, proposal is silliness. Josh, what do you think about it? I think that it's placating to a specific type of voter. I, I think that um, it's, it's definitely everybody that's running for any office these days wants to say that they have the ability to create jobs. And to dovetail that with uh, popularity in, in urban gardening and farmer's markets and farm-to-table and, and people getting closer to the sources of their food, I think that that has a certain romantic appeal to it. Um, and if you can combine those two, create jobs and, and play Yeah, it's the, sort of like thing that you can get going on here. And so I mostly agree. Right. I think it's mostly a harmless proposal. We shouldn't expect him to be able to do anything where it would get dangerous as all of a sudden we started seeing – this actually being legislated and public dollars being dumped into right. something that. Right. Um, Can I ask you guys a question, or do we need to move on? Yeah, because I'm down from Westminster, right? So, but I saw that Hancock is up like ten points according to the Denver Post today. Is this because people perceive Romer, who seems to be to me the more serious, thoughtful guy? Do they perceive him to be slimy, and therefore Hancock is nicer, or what's going on there exactly? Well, we got in this uh, a little bit last week in terms of. The way that the campaigns have, have, have shifted in, in recent weeks, and I would attribute it to kind of, yeah, this, the sliminess factor in how the Romer camp has gone after Hancock with uh, a number of dirty tricks, strange mailings. Uh, I think it's, it's backfired on him and it's turned people against him. And so they're looking at the, all, all this action from Romer and the whole debate has been about mm. Romer's dirty tricks. And Hancock, by default, looks like the more sane, reasonable person. So and silly Trump's mean. I don't know if I characterize Hancock as being silly. Josh? I never really have any issues with dirty tricks. It, <laughs> I mean, as a voter, you sort of expect it. And and I, I think that if, if somebody that's running for mayor really wants it, they're going to have this reserve of tactics and and use them as they see fit. And I don't think it makes a good person or a bad person to but attack a little bit. I think Hickenlooper sort of set this precedent. You know, he I'm gonna did. Be, I'm going to be the nice, goofy guy that everybody likes. 
And it works for him, but yeah. it doesn't work for everybody. Maybe I mean, everybody, el- anybody else can come off seeming really benign. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and I think that was the, you know, the calculation that the Romer camp had made, that we can get ahead early, utilize all of our tricks that are m- most often used in partisan races. And because Denver isn't a partisan race, there's oh, a bunch of Democrats that, that are voting, right? Yeah, and, you know, it's not partisan. It, well, are we it, really it, believing that line? No, it, it was nonpartisan in the sense it's not Republicans versus Democrats. I understand right? that, but it, it is. That's that's what I'm saying. You, so it you, always is. You so who, who? What are the partisan camps here? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it part, it's not partisan in the sense that you're going to approach a race against a Democrat versus Republican in a different way that you're going to approach a race that's a municipal race where there are no party right. parties involved. And so right. Romer, I think, with the people involved in his campaign approached it in that way we're gonna you know play the game as you play it on the state or national level uh-huh. and the uh the hickam the i'm sorry the hancock camp who comes more out of the denver politics and, and those types of municipal races approach it a little bit differently i don't know it'll be it'll be interesting to see because i do think that if this does fully backfire on romer it does sweep or give hancock the edge to get into the office i think that will be a big indicator and referendum for future elections in terms of when do you or not use dirty tricks and negative campaigning Mm -hmm. in a city like denver so anyway we're talking about people who could be the next mayor of denver but denver's favorite son john elway who if he ran (laughs) i think he would be the the mayor and king of denver just to give you just to give you an idea of of how pervasive elway is if you go to wikipedia and type in elway you don't have a choice (laughs) it takes you directly to john elway and any associations are related to elway on that note coming off an awful 2010 season with an nfl lockout in full swing Elway's lawyer has gone after a Fort Collins punk rock band um, who uses his moniker They're Elway. They're named Elway. Yeah, band. asking him, stopping Elway. short of a cease and desist and stopping short of actually suing them, but has asked them to change their name. The punk rock band um, responded on punknews.org with the following quote, We have no intention of changing the name again. We love the name regardless of what connotations are inferred by the listener. Surely, if the Dead Kennedys could become one of Punk's most popular bands without incurring litigation, Elway can keep their moniker and continue making so-so music for our dozens of fans to enjoy. <laughs> so the band, so the punk rock band Elway, have you actually heard them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're great. They have a and the, I want to join they them. They do. They have, a, they have a MySpace page, and I suggest you, uh, or um, yeah, MySpace. I suggest you um, check out their song, Wolf Shirt. But this is 
so hilarious to me because John Elway, who has licensed his name to several different businesses, namely Elway Steakhouse in Cherry Creek. Right. You guys remember John Elway Honda when it was John Elway Honda. People always thought that these are like – they're dining at Elway Steakhouse and that money goes to John Elway just because he, he's parked like there. Like it's a donation. Parked there uh, at the bar, uh, you know, getting slammed every single Saturday night. <laughs> that this is actually Elway's business. This isn't his business. He he licensed it to these people so that they can just call it Elway's, right? right. And uh, this man's clearly a threat to the how much money he can get for his name. I think that's probably maybe, why. Maybe so. What do you think, Ari? I mean, I I clearly advocate intellectual property, but this is contextual. Obviously, a punk rock band is not saying they're endorsed by John Elway. They're not even saying they're linked with John Elway. So, they just say Elway. Before I was joking, right, they're welcome to use ariarmstrong.com as their band name if they prefer that. <laughs> or, you know, the, the Denver Diatribe. Maybe they Denver can become Diatribe. our in-house, right. in-house band. But it makes me think of the... Uh, Palm Wonderfuls presents. <laughs> yeah. It makes me Denver think of this Diatribe. really great uh, kind of thrash metal punk band that used to be here in Denver. I don't know if they're if they still play any shows, but Scott Bayo Army. Yeah. You guys remember those guys? Uh-huh. That was the best. And I guess uh, I had a friend uh, whose older brother was the lead singer of that band. And their, the highlight of their music career was when they actually got to meet Scott Bayo, who was here for a promotional thing in Denver, and presented Scott Bayo with a T-shirt of Scott Bayo Army. And he was he was rather impressed. He didn't. He was flattered. His lawyers like John yeah, did. yeah. I think John Elway must he takes himself clearly a little too seriously. Well, sometimes, you know, they get these lawyers, and it's like the Denver Post suing people over copyright. Some of that, I think, is useful, but sometimes they just get overzealous, and they're doing things that, I mean, you have to make sense, you have to use some, apply some common sense to these principles. Yeah. I mean, it, clearly, it, it, they're not infringing on John Elway's, they're not depriving him of money or making money off Elway's name, that's just silly to think that. And if anything, his response just makes him look like a jerk. I mean, he's doing more harm to his name by well, it's coming great. after people with a couple dozen fans. Well, it's a great promotional <laughs> material for, for the band. For John Elway, the band. Right. Just Elway, the band. It's because just obviously we're talking about him. Um, okay, so let's, let's move on here. We are going to do our patented Denver diatribe loves and hates. So yeah, don't anyone ever steal it because we, we will send our army of lawyers after you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ari Armstrong, you're our guest. What do you want to love or hate on this week? Sure. So Dan Haley is leaving the Denver Post. But in today's column, which is his parting column, he had this great line. In Colorado, a handshake still means something. And he was talking about confronting Bill Ritter right after his paper had slammed Ritter over something. But I do like the fact that in this, in this area, there are people that I disagree with vehemently on certain issues. But I still respect their work, like Jason Salzman, some people at the Colorado Independent do some really great work as far as journalism, research, investigative journalism, even though I disagree with most of their political views. So I think it's nice that there's sort of a community. I feel like there's a community here, and even though we might thrash it out, there's a lot of people uh, with a variety of views that I respect and that are doing good, great work. Because okay. a handshake does still so, mean something. So that's a, that's a love on Dan yeah, Haley, it's... the outgoing editorial uh, director of the Denver Post. Josh Johnson. Uh, mine is mine is a hate, and it's just more of a, a, a general annoyance that extends probably beyond Denver into Colorado. I'm a smoker, and I'm not proud of it, and it's something that I would like to remove from my life. But I, you know, <clears throat> and I and I support generally not smoking indoors, and and you know, encouraging people not to smoke and things like that. What really annoys me, though, and what I hate is how there aren't ashtrays. And it's as if when you're at like a restaurant, you go outside to smoke or right outside my apartment complex. And this is where it's the most annoying. You're in complete denial that people still do smoke. 
So you don't have ashtrays available, thinking it's going to discourage smoking somehow. When it doesn't discourage smoking, it encourages people putting cigarette butts out on the ground. And it's just, I think it's... So it's you want to hate on the absolute lack of ashtrays. We just lack of ashtrays. Just start banning outdoor smoking, too. Well, they're trying to, right? I mean, if you go to Boulder, smoke on Pearl Street Mall, see if you don't get stared at. Isn't there some kind of, like, ashtray fanny pack that uh, we could issue all the smoke? <laughs> there should be. There should be. I mean, you end up, it's it's like, you know, your dog doo-doo's anywhere, and they, you can't walk three blocks without a bag or a place to drop it off. We recognize that dogs do doo-doo. And and Are offer opportunities like to get rid of it in like reasonable ways. It. <laughs> it's gonna be right. It's one of those things that's sort of it's part like, of life that yeah. people will smoke. So so whenever I see a smoker, I should immediately think of a dog shitting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Much. Yeah. The, the, yeah, and we afford the dogs places to throw out their waste. What about us smokers? Okay. E- equal rights. That's what we're yeah, going for. Dogs okay, my and smokers. my love this week is a new beer that I sampled over at the Wazi Supper Club uh, the other day. I just saw it on the menu. It was on special. Medical Maltawana is the name of the beer. It's by the Wincoop uh, Brewing Company. It's not uh, actually infused, is it? I, they, they, the, the waitress brought it out to me, and it was in like a goblet thing. Was it Maybe, green? And no, it was, it, was very, it was very dark and malty, but you smelled it, and it smelled like weed. Oh, dear. And uh, I, I drank it, and it was like very thick and heavy and did, and did have that sort of like hemp aftertaste right. the waitress assured me that there is no actual marijuana in it they, they there ought to be they, a law they use hemp in inside of it but i like it because as a complete marijuana lightweight who always felt like the odd man out at the drum circles uh, <laughs> yeah. in college finally ne- next time if i ever do find myself uh kicking around the old hacky sack uh i can i can say Pass on the joint. I'm going to be drinking my medical maltawana yeah. six pack. It sounds like false advertising to me. You, you should try it. Next yeah, time we'll, 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 it. we'll do a little uh, taste sampling. So that is all that we have time for this week. Uh, join us on our Facebook page. Tell us what you thought of the episode. Throw out some loves and hates of your own. We're on Twitter. I'm Jared Jacang Mayer. Thanks to our guest, Ari Armstrong. Find his more of his writing and other stuff at freecolorado.com. So for Josh, Ari, and Jared, we are out.